Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Hello and welcome back to the BAC podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Pastor Ryan. Pastor Ryan, we're recording on a Monday this week. This is a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing, but we'll <laughs> we'll find out. So this week, I know we're we're reading First Corinthians four through eight, mm-hmm. but I think First Corinthians one through eight is really all fair game because last time we never really got into the letter much itself. So anything from chapters one through eight will sort of be fair game this time. But just to recap a little bit about what we talked about last time, remember we said Paul went to Corinth on his second missionary journey. And then we talked quite a bit about Corinth. It's a very, very interesting place. Sure was. To say the least. And remember, it's in what we would consider modern day Greece. And it was in this very narrow strip of land. So you have the, the southern mainland of Greece, that's where, you know, Sparta and some of these other places where we typically think of in, in Greece. But then there's this northern strip of, of land, a very narrow strip of land. That's where Corinth is. Mm-hmm. And there's water on both sides. And so there's a lot of different trade that went through this area. Everything going from Rome to Asia Minor basically went through here. Mm-hmm. So it's a very wealthy area. But there were also a lot of other things going on as well, like idolatry, prostitution. It was kind of considered the the Las Vegas of of the ancient world, so to speak. But then eventually, so Paul's there for about 18 months. We know that from the book of Acts. Then eventually he moves on. Mm -hmm. And then during his third missionary journey, he goes to Ephesus. Right. And he's there for for quite a long time, three years, I believe it is. Yeah, it's one of his longer stays. Yes. And while he's there, he gets this report about the church in Corinth. Yeah. Now, how, how do we know this? We know it from chapter 1, actually. It says right in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, or, or Chloe's household, that there's quarreling among you. Mm-hmm. So he got a, a not-so-good report, a report that there's some divisions within the church. And then we also know the Corinthians sent a, a delegation, so to speak, of, of three men to find Paul. And again, we know this from Paul's letter. It says in 1 Corinthians 16, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. How do you like those names? (laughs) (laughs) Because they have made up for your absence. So the Corinthians sent these these three guys to find Paul, and it seems that they brought a letter with them. Right. Because in chapter 7, Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote— so the Corinthians actually put a letter together with some different questions they had and different issues going on, then sent these three men to find Paul. Right. So you know things must have been bad within within the church of Corinth. I think this is interesting, Luke, how you're, you're sharing about this, because obviously there's different letters that are written to 1 Corinthians, and I know you're addressing that, but I think the, uh, the audience needs just to understand it, the difference between 1 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians, but also other letters between. Right. So Paul actually wrote four letters to the Corinthians. A lot of people don't realize this. So, and how do we know this? Well, if if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, first of all, 
Paul says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Mm-hmm. So what's the implication? So the implication is there was another letter <laughs> right. that we don't have. So what we know as 1 Corinthians is actually Paul's second letter. Do you know where that uh, letter is? We don't know. Yeah. And if you could find it, it would be very valuable. It's worth a lot of money, <laughs> huh? <laughs> but then we also know there was a, another letter before 2 Corinthians, because in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Mm-hmm. Now, more than likely, he's not talking about First Corinthians here because while First Corinthians addresses some issues in the church, it, it's not what we would consider a painful, stern letter. Yes. Right? So it's pretty clear there's another letter he's talking mm-hmm. about. So there's a letter before First Corinthians, then First Corinthians, a letter before Second Corinthians, and then Second Corinthians. And actually, you know this, Luke, people are going to then ask uh, – just about scripture and you know being right. inspired and what about these other letters? So does everything that they write inspired word of God? What isn't? Right. Yeah. So I, th- I think the question that comes to mind for me is, did Paul write uninspired letters? But it, it, if we think about this, and I, I guess another question here would be as well, what if we found the letter? You know, we just mentioned this. What if we found the letter? Would you include it in scripture? Oh, yeah. Right? Good question. So th- yeah, it can get pretty tricky, but. As we think about this, we have to think about, so the verse that comes to mind for me is 2 Timothy 3.16. It says that all scripture is breathed out by God. Mm -hmm. What it doesn't say is that the writers of scripture themselves are inspired. Okay. It's it's a distinction here. It is. It's scripture itself that is breathed out by God. So we have to understand that God preserved for us exactly what he wants us Mm -hmm. to have. He worked through specific people and specific writings even in certain circumstances to preserve for us exactly what he wanted to have. I think, Luke, there's a misunderstanding among many people. It's almost like someone goes to breakfast, then all of a sudden they have a pen, they sit down, yeah, right. and then all the days they just right. start writing. They don't even know what they're thinking about. They're just writing, and boom, they're, they're scripture. Right, almost like they're in this trance or right. like spiritual trance. And I think that thinking, this, this idea that these apostles are in like a trance when they write, this is what leads to us thinking, well, then we need to preserve everything they ever wrote. Correct. Because they're always in this trance. It's almost like they're above normal men. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they're... Everything they write has to be inspired, but that's not the case. No. We know this, that God was using these men. Yes. But sometimes we forget there's a human element to this. Yes. I mean, Luke talks about how he actually investigated. I'm sure he's taking notes, and then he's putting everything together. Now, God was working through that, but we forget there's a human element to this piece. He interviewed people. Right. And a lot of people think that he interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. So, yeah, it was a very, in a sense— Although God was sovereign over the entire process, it was a very normal process at yes. the same time. So God is working through all these details, but he, he worked through the normal aspects of, of the writers' lives. So he worked through their educations, personalities, experiences, so that they would write and preserve exactly what we need, exactly what he wanted us to have. So we have to get away from this thinking that everything that Paul wrote or, or these guys wrote was inspired. So, for example, if Paul wrote down a grocery list. <laughs> Birthday card. <laughs> yeah. Or he, he writes a, a letter to Barnabas saying, hey, I don't like you anymore. We're splitting up. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
not everything that they wrote is inspired. Obviously, we would know that too. It just makes sense. Yeah. So we don't have to worry. God has preserved for us exactly what he wants us to have. So if we were to find a letter to answer yep. the question, mm-hmm. it would certainly be very interesting. Mm-hmm. And we could learn a lot from it from a historical perspective. We could probably learn more about the church at Corinth. What Corinth example. was like, worldviews, how they are thinking. Exactly. But it would not be part of Scripture, not part of the canon, because God has already preserved for us exactly what we need. And we have a lot of books from ancient times that's not part of the canon, yet we still use them for historical information, worldview information. Exactly. And, and just to circle back here, one other point I, I wanted to make quickly is that I mentioned that the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter, and these three guys delivered it. Right. So one thing that you're going to see throughout 1 Corinthians is Paul's going to say things like, now concerning this, or now concerning this. What he's doing is he's mm. responding to their different points that they wrote out. Right. And you'll actually see a couple times where something will be in quotes. So, for example, he says, I believe it's in chapter 6, all things are lawful for me. That's in quotes. And you might wonder why. Well, Paul's actually quoting the Corinthians back to themselves. Mm-hmm. He's saying, this is what you said. Now let me respond to it. So just as a point of clarification, that's what Paul is doing here. Now, Pastor Ryan, I think you had something that you wanted to mention about idols here and, and sort of the the ancient context for that. Did you want to speak to that? Sure, I'll share a little bit. Obviously, you're going to be reading in towards the end of uh, 1 Corinthians and talks about, you know, sacrificing meat to idols. Right. One thing I thought that's just an interesting piece of information is I think that sometimes people, and I, I myself was included in this, we get very confused about idol worship mm-hmm. because we think it's sort of silly. I mean, here is a person, they carve some wood or they take some clay and make an image of it and then they start bowing down and worshiping it worshiping right. it and you think well, that's it's, pretty goofy. It's stone or wood yeah <laughs> but actually that is not what the ancients did they didn't yeah. they didn't really believe that right. what they believed is that their gods were actually imaged or they they didn't believe that the, the gods were actually that image or that stone or that piece of wood what the ancient idol worshippers believed was that the object they made was inhabited by their god. Right. And so that's why they'd perform ceremonies so that maybe that god would enter into that image. Um, sometimes they even share about what they call opening the mouth of the statue. And by opening the mouth of the statue, they were hoping that that spirit, that deity, would actually move in and occupy the object. And once it was occupied, like the, mm-hmm. the spirit or the, uh, would occupy that object, then it was localized so that they could worship it. Right. Um, I mean, I often thought, if you had an idol of wood and your house burnt down, does that mean that, that they believed that that um, spirit was gone? No. Of course not. No. So what they would do is they would refashion. Make another, another idol. Make another idol, have a ceremony. And actually, then they would pray that that um, spirit would enter into that um, whatever object that they've made. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one where you can see, now it's in 1 Corinthians 10, but Paul's addressing this, and he says this in verse 19. Do I mean then that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, mm. not to God, mm-hmm. and I do not want you to, to participate with demons. This is the concept in what he's talking about. Right. So the idols, they viewed them as almost giving them access to some sort of 
spirit. Right. Right. So there's definitely some sort of, as, as Paul says, there's some de- demonic activity mm-hmm. associated with this, and that's what he's saying is, is dangerous about this. Yeah, so it wasn't like they just thought that they were going to worship a stone or right. a wood, but they thought, again, the Spirit inhabited that peace. And then, again, like I said, you say, it's localized. So then yeah. I have it, I can worship it, it's with me. Right. There was a spiritual being inhabiting the stone or the wood. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Well, one other interesting passage that I found was chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2. I think this is just a a fascinating passage. Paul says this. It's a little bit longer, but I think it's important that we read it. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had... They would not have crucified the risen Lord of glory. So he's talking here about the secret and hidden wisdom. What's he talking about? He's talking about God's plan of redemption through Jesus, and specifically salvation through a crucified Messiah. Mm-hmm. They, nobody was expecting the Messiah to no. be crucified. And even the disciples didn't expect this. No. This is why we see them reacting the way that they do. So... Paul says God decreed before the ages that this would happen, that Jesus would be crucified. God knew all along. But then it says none of the rulers of this age understood this, because if they had, (laughs) they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. But now comes the question, who are the rulers of this age, Mm -hmm. right? And some commentators will argue here that it's talking about human rulers, and, and specifically the human rulers who killed Jesus or who who were responsible for killing Jesus. The problem with that view is that 1 Corinthians was written, remember we said about 55 AD. Mm -hmm. So by this point, we think about the rulers who were associated with Jesus' death. Pilate, he died about 39 AD. Yep, he's dead. Herod also died around 39 AD. Caiaphas, the high priest, Mm -hmm, the Jewish high priest, he died about 36 AD. So those guys are all gone. But in the verse, it says the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Yes. And it's, it's in the present tense. Mm-hmm. So that, that doesn't really make sense. It doesn't seem like it's really talking about human rulers here. And this term for passing away actually means something like make of no effect or nullify or make powerless. So it seems like this fits better with powers of darkness who have been defeated by the death of Christ. Right. And also we should note too that the, the rulers, this term rulers that's used here, is used for Satan and for other evil spiritual beings throughout the New Testament. Yeah, it makes me think of Ephesians 6 where it talks about there's powers and principalities and there's a hierarchy. Exactly. It says our struggle is not against flesh and blood but rulers and authorities. Mm -hmm. It's the same word there. So what Paul is saying here is that the forces of darkness didn't fully understand God's plan of redemption because if they had, they wouldn't have killed Jesus. I think this is just fascinating because if, if we think about this, I think people often wonder, why are, for example, the Old Testament prophecies so cryptic yeah. or so mysterious? And I think from our perspective, it's a little bit easier because we have Jesus. We have the full story. Yeah, we can go back. Yeah. We can we can see how it fits together. We have hindsight. So we can say, well, obviously, Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus, the suffering servant. But it wouldn't have been so clear for a no. Jewish person living in the moment. It was, it was hard for them to understand. So why was it cryptic? Why did, he, why did God want to keep things hidden? It was because he wanted to ensure that the forces of darkness 
didn't know his full plan. Yeah, he isn't, hid that. Isn't that fascinating? And that seems to agree with First Peter one twelve, which seems to indicate that even the angels didn't fully understand mm-hmm. God's plan. They had to observe it as it happened. It is fascinating, too, to think how God hid this and almost duped the demonic beings. Yeah. He wins the whole time. God had it rigged all along. <laughs> I actually think about the Chronicles of Narnia, and I, I know most of us, or many of us probably read the book, but I don't know if you saw the um, actually the last movie, or one of the movies on it, mm-hmm. but I think about when uh, Aslan goes and he's going to be killed, you, you see all these creatures and demonic spirits and all yep. that, and they, I think they think they win the game. Mm-hmm. I think they think, I am killing the Son of God who's come back to reclaim everything. He's done, finished, and he didn't realize they were being duped the whole Time. The whole time. I think this is really an encouragement that, that God is really in control. Mm-hmm. God God knows everything. His His plan wins in the end. Yeah, we got to figure it out. We can be encouraged by that. Well, Pastor Ryan, there, there was a, a passage in chapter 3, I believe it is, where, where Paul kind of says, oh, yeah. you know, I, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So there's some division going on within the church, and Paul's kind of addressing mm-hmm. that. Do you want to explain the significance of, of that passage? Well, there's one thing that comes to light to my mind is really the question becomes to me, what is the responsibility of God's work versus the responsibility of our work? Right. A lot of times you'll hear people or pastors say, well, it's all God. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds nice and holy, mm-hmm. but the problem is sometimes we can make that an excuse. Right. Because if it's all God and I have nothing to do with it, I can do a terrible job and guess whose fault it is? It's God's fault. Well, that's God's fault. It's not my fault. Mm-hmm. And so I think when he's talking about the watering and the seed, um, I think about just farming. Mm. And just think how foolish it would be if a farmer would just pray all day saying, God, I just hope you give me a great <laughs> harvest of corn or wheat. Right. Well, that doesn't make sense. Not going to work out too well. Not going to work out too well. Foolish farmer, huh? Yep. We know they go out, they, they fertilize, we know they, they'll plow the land, they'll prepare the land, they plant the seed, they, they water the seed. Mm-hmm. They do everything they can. They create, in a sense, the environment for it. Yep. But it's only God who can make that seed grow. Hmm. And I think there is where the tension is, is there is a responsibility, a dual responsibility. The responsibility God has, only God can change a person's life. Right. Only God can make a person grow. Yep. But we have a responsibility of, of working and preparing the soil. That's why in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9, you're talking about it. It said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. And so we think the miracle of growth is always in God's hands. He's the only one can do that. Yes. But the responsibility of prefer- preparing the field mm-hmm. is in our hands. Mm-hmm. We still have a part to play. There's some ownership that we still have to take. There is. And again, I feel like oftentimes what we do is we blame God for situations where we were a little bit responsible for that. We should have prepared. We should have planned for. But then we'll say, well, if it's all God, well, then if it fails, guess what? <laughs> it's all God. Right. right. But we do have a part to play. We absolutely do. Yeah. One, one thing I wanted to bring up, too, is you'll see a couple of times in these, these first couple chapters especially, like, for example, in chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says that he did not preach with eloquent wisdom when he was with the Corinthians. Then in chapter 2, he says he didn't come with brilliance of speech mm-hmm. or wisdom. And you might wonder, you know, why, why does he say that? I mean, it's pretty clear Paul has some, some good rhetoric skills. Yeah, he's right? a pretty smart guy. He's a pretty smart guy, and he was trained as a Pharisee, but... There's some cultural background here that I think will help us understand this. So understand that in, in our culture, who are the popular people? It's, it's the athletes, it's the, the movie stars, mm-hmm. all of those people. 
in this culture, popular people were actually skilled speakers and philosophers. It's a little bit different, a little bit different culture. And these people, these skilled speakers were actually called sophists, which comes from the same root as our word sophisticated. Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah. So sophists would actually debate other people and what they would do is kind of give these flashy speeches using their polished skills, you know, Mm -hmm. they would, they would practice. And the best sophists actually had students underneath them who would pay them. And the better you were at speaking, and of course, the more followers Mm -hmm. you would have. So they would travel around from city to city to kind of show off to gain more followers. More likes, huh? Yeah. And so they were, they were more concerned about how they sounded than content Mm -hmm. in a sense. So the, the Corinthians would have expected Paul to kind of behave in a, sim- in a similar manner. They would have expected him to have a, a similar approach. But when Paul is describing himself, he uses the metaphor of a herald or a messenger. The difference here is that a sophist is trying to proclaim their own message. They're trying to exalt themselves. A herald proclaims the message of another. Hmm. So there's a difference here. He's not trying to impress the Corinthians. He's trying to give them the truth. Now, again, this is not an excuse for laziness. Right. Paul is clearly very skilled in in language and, and rhetoric. But he's saying, ultimately, I, I don't care about impressing you. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to change your lives. Right. So I, I just wanted to explain that there was a little bit of cultural background there that I think helps us make sense of that. And I think there's some application there as well where we can think, you know, do we do things to please God or to please man. Mm-hmm. Well, any last thoughts that you have, Pastor Ryan, on, on these first few chapters? I was just going to mention pretty just real quick uh, 1 Corinthians 5. And if you look at the background, remember there's a, a man who was actually sleeping with his um, mother-in-law. Ste- or stepmom. Mom, step-mom. Thank you. Yep, yep. And if you look through that, Paul's upset. It's almost like the Corinthians are cheering it on, think it's the greatest thing. Mm-hmm. He's upset, but he says something. Paul says something that I believe if the church would practice this, would make such a difference in our world. If you ask most people what they think of Christians, what would they say that they are? They're judgmental, mm-hmm. right? Yep. But look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Hmm. He's saying it's not my responsibility. They're yeah. on God's hook, yeah. not my hook. So right. he says, what business is it mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Mm-hmm. So the point is, those who are outside, who are non-believers, he's saying don't judge them. Mm-hmm. That's on God's hook. And what we do is, the reason we come across so judgmental, is we're judging them for things that they are not agreed upon. They're like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe those type of things. Mm-hmm. So he says, what business of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outsides, but expel the wicked person from among you. Mm-hmm. He's saying this, if you're going to deal with judging or dealing with someone, deal with people in the inside. church, inside, right. and let God deal with those outside. Right. Why would we expect non-Christians to act like Christians? I don't know. It's not our business. We judge those inside the church. It does make sense. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention about that whole scenario there, too, is I read that in this culture, it was common for men to marry women quite a bit younger than them. So in in this scenario, a lot of scholars think that this uh, stepmom may have actually been similar in age to this man who 
who committed adultery. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so just some more cultural background for you. Remember to listen next week as we finish up 1 Corinthians. We'll start getting into 2 Corinthians mm-hmm. here as well. And remember why we're doing this. We want to help you get into the Word until it gets into you. And we want to equip you so that you can go out and you can be a world changer. <laughs>